I was so terrified that somebody else might have built something similar when we first happened on the idea that really it's been so enjoyable pushing it and promoting it and building it because I was so internally convinced this is the best way to name locations. Yeah, maybe it is a bit mad when you say uh, a bassoon is raising 150 million, but it also feels like this does justice to the idea that we came up with. That's Chris Sheldrick, the bassoon playing founder of What Three Words, which is one of the most ingenious products I've ever seen, certainly out of London's tech scene. The basic problem that What Three Words is solving is that lots of places don't have addresses or correct addresses, like where a barge is on a canal or where to meet friends in a campsite like Glastonbury. At What Three Words, they've divided the world into three metre squares, each of which corresponds to three words. So the post box over the road might be duck, bull, happy, or whatever. It's an elegant solution that helps companies in industries like logistics, but also emergency services and NGOs trying to do things like coordinate a response to humanitarian crises. I actually first met Chris years ago when I was starting out on my entrepreneurial journey, and I was annoyingly impressed by him. Anyway, we'll get to that. But first, we need to find out why a young man would take up the bassoon. Growing up for me, uh, probably dominated by being an only child. I was kind of left alone with two things. Uh, one was a set of musical instruments. Uh, the other one was a computer. And we're talking in the 80s here. So this is pre-internet computers. Uh, so it's so kind of solitary. So I was one of those guys fiddling with MS-DOS, but also um, learning to play musical instruments. And I guess my parents were sort of more or less equally happy which one of these I spent my time with. But actually, uh, because I was on a on a farm in the middle of nowhere, well, I say middle of nowhere, only an hour from London, but my parents never really came to London. That's what I spent most of my life doing. And, and I guess um, got good at music by doing that and goodish at computers. Good at computers. Hilarious. And you sound like you sound like a, a parent already. You sound like an adult. Well, I think it's one of those things that, I mean, certainly back then and when I was growing up, yeah, good at computers was the kind of phrase that somebody would use. Obviously, no one would ever say that now uh, because everybody is and uses it. But um, I only kind of comment on it now because when I when I left school, I thought, well, I'm, I'm clearly going to go into music because that's what I'd sort of spent most of my teenage years doing. And so in kind of a strange way, it feels weird and good to be back in tech because I started in tech when I was only 31. But everybody in my life knew me as this musician or person in music. So it was kind of a weird jump. But I, I always then say to people, actually, I was a nerd when I was seven as well. So it kind of counts that I have experience. Well, speaking of being a nerd, slight meander. Have you seen a show called Only Murders in the Building? Not yet. Okay, it's great. It's on Disney Plus, I think it is, with Steve Martin. And it's, it's awesome. But there's a character in that who plays the bassoon. And I was like, when I, I remember watching it and being like, oh, bassoon, who plays the bassoon? That is just so random, isn't it? And the answer, of course, is Chris Sheldrick plays the bassoon. So why do you play the bassoon? Talk to us about that randomness. So you're, you're absolutely right. I do play the bassoon. And in fact, it's one of those things I think my dad, in order to sort of get ahead in the musical world, I think somebody advised him that really no kids played the bassoon. And my dad, I think, was desperate for me to be either the best or certainly very good at something. So he sort of turned up one day with this long piece of wood and was like, look, I really think that learning how to blow this and play this well is going to set you forward in life. So you're like the Cristiano Ronaldo of the bassoon world. 
Um, pretty much. That's where I wanted to get to um, and and did OK. It's just incredibly niche, but great. And my dad was absolutely right in that whenever you tried to get into an orchestra or anything, they always go, oh, yeah, we haven't really got any bassoon players. So so he was right. And I was able to sort of get into the stuff I wanted to get into. But yes, it, it stays with me as a, as a fairly sort of niche accomplishment. Do you play any other instruments? I play the clarinet and the piano. And so they, they were my three, I guess, although um, unfortunately did have an accident just after I graduated uh, in music, which meant that I know means that I no longer really do. I play the piano a bit now, but um, but not so much. Uh, so I have a sleepwalking disorder and I um, I punched through a window whilst I was asleep, which I wouldn't recommend to anybody and managed to sever eight tendons in my left wrist and a nerve and unfortunately if you cut the nerve or cut the ulnar nerve it means that two of your fingers don't work that well permanently so um yeah it was like a month after graduating or so um thinking that i was going to go into the music business or be a musician so a bit of an abrupt career change uh, at that point but you know it's just the way it goes and and life deals you these hands sometimes i guess Oi, life deals you these hands very good just to be clear how like so the sleepwalking disorder was that the first time you'd had like a major incident with it to that degree? And so the second part of that question is, did it wake you up? <laughs> um, so not first time I'd injured myself because I think I'd always thought, oh, you know, uh, yeah, I have this sleepwalking disorder, and just to be clear, I have it about um, sixty times a month, so around twice a night, and have had that since I'm age nine or ten years old or something. But I just kind of always thought, oh, that's just one of those things. Never injured myself until obviously the day you injure yourself. And uh, no, it didn't wake me up, even though I yeah, cut most of my wrist open um, and only woke up in the middle of the road. It was only in fact like a neighbor who thought there was a burglar because they heard the window smash who kind of came and rescued me. And so the whole, the whole thing was quite dramatic, but nevertheless could, could have been a lot worse, I think is probably the short version. Oh, so many questions. You must have answered a million questions on your sleepwalking habits before. I, I have, in, including a, a sort of Sky documentary I, I filmed once naively at the time, thinking it, it would it would go and be broadcast once. And, it, and it's still, I think, if you ever see Britain's worst sleepwalkers, I think I'm up there somewhere. That is fascinating. OK, I mean, we'll have to move on on the basis of we're not here to talk about your sleepwalking disorders, but... It was so fascinating to hear that it didn't wake you up, right? But then, like you say, um, dealt with these hands for whatever reason. And yeah, you might well have been the world's preeminent bassoonist if uh, if it had carried on that way, the Cristiano Ronaldo of the bassoon world. But instead, you've built a phenomenal company that's actually like a world-changing concept in so many ways. So um, we will obviously come on to that. But it is amazing, like in the heat of the moment, when you can obviously imagine how you might be feeling from something happening to the actual reality of reflection. Kind of reminds me of that, like, whatever it is, old Persian uh, parable of uh, the guy with the horse and like the son of a prince. And, you know, they come to take his son to battle and he's like, oh, it must be terrible for you. And he's like, perhaps... And the son comes back all injured and, you know, they're like, oh my God, you've got an injured son. That's so terrible. And he's like, perhaps. Anyway, the whole point of the story is like, you never really know if something's good or bad. Everything is perhaps. And the next event that will happen and unfold in your life might actually show you the true destination you were meant to take anyway. I totally agree with that because just looking back, 
as great as I was at the bassoon, I don't think I'd have had the career I've had now um, had I kept on doing that. I mean, I, I would have probably gone on to be a jazz pianist or something. But still, I think that doing that, and it was so soon after graduating that I then set up a music business originally, uh, doing management and these kind of things, that you just kind of, I look back and think, God, I'm so lucky this happened because I would, I would no way have ended up here had that not have happened. So, yeah, but you're right. You don't know at the time, and time kind of figures its way out later. Okay, so talk to me. So, you know, this is your second business. Um, what, what three words is your second business? You mentioned that you went into a business right off the back in music. That was CS Music, right? So can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So it the easy thing about that business was, and again, I only had one functional arm hand at the, at the time was, Really, I called around some friends and said, look, do you want to do gigs by which at that time I met sort of private event gigs? These were not um, public concerts. And I got a website up and running fairly quickly. And again, this was 2003. So this was like a a non-standard thing to do in 2003 uh, to make your own website. And the speed in which we got started, I was just very happy with. I ran a few ads and I sent a few emails and and we got work and, and it kind of went from there. And then I guess I found my my niche and what it ended up being was with this business that would put on very lavish, bespoke music for parties around the world. Basically, my, my, my clients were the one who would come in and say that music's the most important thing about this event and it has to be amazing and off the charts. And, and that's where I would come in because I was equally passionate about delivering really greatly produced music. And so I did that for 10 years and about 100 shows a year. So I guess, yeah, 1,000 shows and got pretty good at it. So um, it's good, although as a business, it's a highly competitive area. Um, it's very all the sort of things that What Through Words isn't in many ways. So it's high, highly competitive and, you know, you sort of blinked and you lost a client and then you gained a new client. And it's a hard business to scale. People get very fixated on you as the person they want to um, to deal with. Whereas when you're building a tech business, it's not so much about you and, and you can scale more easily. So, but the really good thing about it was it was a business that was just kind of how much did you make versus how much did you spend every month? And I guess I learned the just fundamentals of, of what makes a business go round, which I think is has put me in good stead to then trying a business very, very different to that. And how did you get out of that business? Did you sell it? Did you just stop it? What happened? So... When I had the idea for World Through Words, that business uh, had a team, a small team. And so that team now run the business today. There's a fantastic lady called Ursula who who just took over the reins. And I still own the business, but she is now CEO of that company. And, and it still runs today. They still do their 100 shows a year, COVID notwithstanding. And it's brilliant and, and it works. And, and they take on the legacy that I guess I started back in 2003. I mean, that's kind of the dream, isn't it? So um, the year is 2015. And a less bearded young Daniel Murray, not certain about then, because I hadn't met my wife, is pitching his new startup company, Grabble, at an investor event. And he hadn't actually been to an investor event really before, so didn't really know what he was doing because his previous business, much like yours, um, wasn't a startup in the traditional sense, didn't need investment money, or certainly wasn't, you know, a uh, a capital intensive one. It was what well, you know, some of us now call bootstrapped. So I was there quite nervous for how people were going to receive my pitch. And up steps this guy just before me with a very confident, it's worth saying, very, very weird and very, I would say potentially even megalomaniacal 
if I've even pronounced that right, uh, glint in his eye about a massive problem in the world that he has spotted, that no one else seems to have spotted, but was even back then called What Three Words? And up to the stage, uh, younger Chris Sheldrick turns up and starts talking about this amazing idea and vision. And honestly, I think from what I remember, because I do remember the feeling, you know, it's the very classic, no one remember what you say, but remember how they make you feel. You made me feel very insecure, so thanks for that. And But you also made me feel very inspired and actually like the kind of entrepreneur I really wanted to be. I hadn't yet met people like you ever that were doing big things, big crazy things. I've never met another person yet doing something startup-y like I was. That was my first proper experience of it. And I was very, very inspired. And you did, from what I remember, get a nice uh, you know, clap and standing ovation from it. But you were there pitching what three words right before I was pitching Grabble. Do you remember? I do remember. I, I remember specifically because you, you, you were very uh, kind about it at the time. And it was one of the first awards that we'd been up for as well. And I guess everyone gets similarly kind of shaky for those kind of things. And yeah, megalomaniac or or otherwise, like, I guess the um, the funny thing is when I first started doing those awards, and I think the first one we won was a few months before that called Wired. It was Wired Retail or sort of startup competition or something. And it's one of those like grass is always greener things. I remember doing my pitch and then everybody else there was pitching about these very kind of retail, you know, it's kind of checkout page software and payments and this kind of thing. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, you know, which is so tangential to this, because what I was basically saying is, you know, the future of delivery will be about specifying a three meter square for your delivery to reach you. And it in some ways just seemed so kind of out there compared to everyone doing these very traditional things. And I remember trying to leave the event straight after my pitch because I was just like, God, am I even in the right event here because we're so different? And then someone of the organizers was like, no, 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 don't leave, you know, sort of nudge, nudge. And, and we ended up winning the whole thing. And it was a great proof point back then that everybody seemed to, not not everybody, actually, that's another story. Um, we can often polarize opinion, but we had so much support for what we were doing that we could revolutionize these, these industries. But I guess I realized that our pitch was quite different to a lot of people's pitches because it was very global. It was very kind of the entire world can change the way it does addresses. But I definitely wasn't sort of a natural at it or finding our place in that world of startups to start with. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. 
If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. And it's interesting because, you know, you are one of those people, one of those companies, certainly, that everyone assumes will fail because um, the ambition is too high. So I wouldn't assume you'd fail somewhere like Silicon Valley, but assume you'd fail in London starting a company like this for no other reason than it just sort of didn't feel like the market, this is my opinion, I'm sure you felt it too, the market that we had was mature enough to take bets like this. Like you say, it's an esoteric bet. It's a a correct bet. It's an astute observation. But whether London is the obvious place to have started something like this and you would get the funding support you need and the encouragement, I think that's kind of why, naturally, as an entrepreneur that you know got the chance to meet you and listen to this stuff, you just root for you. Like You just want it to happen because you want London to be a place like that. You want England to be a place that celebrates this kind of innovation. And I think that is enough of a preamble to ask you to actually explain what what three words is and I wouldn't be surprised if it hasn't changed, your pitch hasn't really changed since the start, really, has it? It hasn't massively changed. So, okay, so what happened is in those 10 years of running music events around the world, I was the person that gave addresses for where the event took place. Seems sort of reasonable enough. Um, and said, just load in here um, to where we were. What turns out to be the case is that everywhere that a musician or production company seems to go seems to be somewhere where the address does not work because you're either trying to find sort of the back of Wembley Stadium or halfway up a mountainside in Italy or something. And so I tried to the sort of um, the tech geek in me tried to impose latitude and longitude onto the London music business. Um, so yes, you would have bassoonists or anyone else kind of going, look, Chris, I really want to come to today's gig, but what do I do with this kind of 4.689 you know, degrees north? And where's the comma and how do I use the degrees? And all of this kind of thing. Because I was like, look, you can just put it into any sat nav or anything and it will take you to the precise point. And basically, technically it worked, but people just didn't want to use it and didn't like it. And there was this one horrendous day in Italy where our truck driver, who had brought all of the equipment over from London um, by road, arrived an hour north of Rome instead of an hour south of Rome using my coordinates that I'd forced them to use. A few months later, this sort of bugged me enough. I sat down with my friend Mohan and just said to him, look, how can we compress 16 digits of latitude and longitude into something ultra simple like this just musician proof idiot proof that anyone can use and he frankly being being the genius much more so than me said um you know we first of all said what about an alphanumeric code and i said no too complicated and then he said well what about a sequence of words and i thought well you'd probably have to have four or five words in the sequence and we did the back of the envelope maths and actually you only need three words to get your 57 trillion combinations and just instantly i just thought that is awesome I should drop everything and go and make this a business. And the whole thing was kind of done and dusted in 20 minutes. And that's what we'd still do today. It's the whole world in three meter squares. And uh, we use three words to name each. So I think 
the thing I had going for me at the time was a lot of naivety and that I just I hadn't really thought when we first approached investors, I hadn't thought, gosh, how do we go there? Is this B to C? Is it B to B? How do we monetize? It was an idea of which the main kind of bit was, look, we'll figure it out later. I was very excited about this. And I think like so many startup founders, uh, you sort of assume that everyone will be equally excited in your ideal. Certainly, Can you imagine what the world would be like if it was split by three by three word squares? How is that not as interesting to you as to me? Exactly. So so that was kind of my, my pitch. And I think the first few people I told us, I mean, even my my uh, other co-founder, Jack, who I kind of pitched it to, um, luckily, they did think it was great as I thought it was. So I got off to a really good start. And it felt like people were really into it. And so I, I became quite secretive about it, as also many founders do. Uh, so I didn't tell many people. And then as I started to, and we sort of hired our first PR company, actually the PR company then asked to invest. And I thought, God, this is great. You know, we've got we've got something here that, that people want to invest in. And strangely enough, not everybody wants to invest in what three words or, or any company. And I found that it is something which is quite polarizing. Sometimes I would just say to people that I'm about to launch this thing, three meters, three words. And they would just be either confused or would just say, well, that seems totally pointless. And they would give us incredibly negative feedback as well. So I think just like anyone, you, you realize soon enough that you're going to have to speak to a lot of people to to get your investment. But the one really good thing about what three words is that it's so polarizing. And I think I've realized it's really good because if you speak to 10 people and five really dislike it and five really like it, that's great. You've got five investors or customers or something. I think the difficulty is if you have something that everybody's a bit kind of meh about and you're in the middle of the road, it'll be harder. But certainly back then, yeah, we got investors because enough people just went, that's awesome, I'm in. And we got up and running with our with our seed funding. Talk to me a little bit about your seed funding. Or actually talk to me about your, your fundraising journey just before we get into like deeper questions about the product, the company, etc. How much have you raised? Where are you at today? How many rounds? Like, give us a sort of like, you know, classic tech crunchy business insight into the boring stuff. Sure. So we've raised about 150 million pounds so far. And I guess we went through a fairly logical sequence of events um, from C to A to B. And our last round was the Series C. Like, like everybody, you kind of learn about all of the serious stuff uh, when you do your first institutional rounds and you have to produce more, more docs and it all gets more formalized as you go through them. I think the one thing that we realized is that as one of the kind of crazier ideas out there, and by the way, I only say that because I think that's it's so many other people's perception of us that is crazy. For me, it still seems like an entirely logical, very good solution to a numerical problem. But but let's call it a crazy business. What we've really benefited from is having a lot of strategic investments because you get to have their brand name as part of your sales pitch. So the fact that we can say we're funded by Intel and Sony and Mercedes and Ikea and Subaru and all, all of these big businesses that people have heard of it means that that customer who's kind of on the fence going is this kind of brilliant or crazy, they will fall down the side of brilliant because the validation really helps them get there. And I think if we'd have just gone pure play financial investors who maybe weren't well known around the world, that would have inhibited our growth a bit because there's always a good reason to sort of say, not now, to what three words going, you know, you guys are doing great. This is really fun and exciting. But a lot of people sort of want, they feel like they want to be first with it, but some, sometimes they want to be last because they just want to know it's been validated by everyone in their sector. What we need is for people to act now and integrate what three words 
and having that credibility from strategic investors helped a load along the way. Is it mad to you sometimes to reflect on the fact that a company that, well, firstly, a former bassoonist that came up with an idea for three words by three words to map locations has raised £150 million for that. It's not small money. Yeah, I don't know how many bassoonists that does apply to. Because yeah, um, it was and... already niche, but I feel like, you know, maybe there's only <laughs> only a small handful of you. Uh, exactly. So, yes, yeah, sort of proficient fundraising bassoonists, uh, few and far between. Um, but it does kind of, although also on the other end of it, I guess that's the thing. I am still, even though the music world doesn't know me as such, I, I'm still that that kind of kid who used to mess around on MS-DOS and liked making formulas and codes and all of these kind of things. And really, What Three Words is also just a giant code at the end of the day. We've just encoded a latitude and longitude using something else. And so I guess in my head, I kind of feel back to my roots. But I think also the thing for me was just, I was so into what we'd built. And in fact, one of the first things I was, I was so terrified that somebody else might have built something similar when we first happened on the idea, that really it just sort of, it's been so enjoyable pushing it and promoting it and building it because I was so internally convinced this is the best way to name locations. Yeah, maybe it is a bit mad when you say uh, uh, a bassoon is raising 150 million, but it also feels like this does justice to the idea that we came up with or, or Mohan more accurately came came up with. It feels less weird when you say the Cristiano Ronaldo of bassoonists were able to raise this much money because, yeah, so don't worry about it. Um, okay, so... Talk to me a little bit about the journey then. How, like, reflect on your first two to three years. You have this idea, you raised how much money to get going, and then how did you show traction? Like, what were you basically saying to investors you would achieve between period X and period Y? It's a good question because the first two to three years were a bit odd in that a lot of it was PR-led. We did really well with PR because, again, it was this captivating idea that would generally get us coverage in the press. And we kept getting sort of consumers in off the back of the PR. But what something like What Three Words really needs is network effect. And unfortunately, you won't get that just from short bursts in things, which, of course, once the idea is out there, kind of the burst gets smaller and smaller. And I think that we thought monetizing B2B, going to the likes of the DHLs and these other logistics businesses and car navigation, they would put it in because it gave benefit to their, to their consumers. The reality is that... That doesn't happen. And yet, unless you can show those businesses that there is a real network effect of consumers in the markets that they care about who already know about what three words. And that is very hard work. And that's something that we've subsequently done. But in the first few years, we didn't know that. And we went out there knocking on doors. We were thinking, you know, do we start in the UK? Do we start elsewhere? We were doing loads of travel. And so I guess our pinnacle year was that 2015 year when when you and I first met. And we won two or three awards. And then we went in for something called the Cannes Lions, uh, which is a big sort of creative industry thing um, in Cannes in France. And we won what's called a Grand Prix there. And we we had a huge stage. And so much came off the back of that. I don't think, I mean, I'd never heard of it before. Our, our CMO came from the advertising world and, and he told me that this is a big deal. Yeah, that is, just for anyone that doesn't know, that is the number one event in advertising and, and media in the world, probably per year. Yeah, which is what I discovered at the time. And and then the fact that they don't even always award a Grand Prix. And so, you know, there's a gold medal and the Grand Prix was even better. And so 
just coming off the back of that and having so many people then captivated. And again, this was the idea they were rewarding us for, not not the business, not for anything else. It was the idea. And we were still a couple of years in after founding it. But what it did get us was a global platform. I think that year, What Three Words was something like the 18th most awarded advertising agency in the world. Obviously, the irony being we're not an advertising agency, but we just won so many awards that it brought us greater investment. And we then stocked up on team. We got bigger and we kind of figured out how we were going to go about this balance, which is probably the best way of putting it between growing consumers who use what three words and growing businesses. But if you can imagine the very hardest network effect problem to solve, I'm sure we must be up there in it because not only do you have to get consumers and consumers both using it, someone has to give a three word address and someone else has to type one in. That alone is a really hard network effect business to build. And then you've got the second bit, which is to get the platforms to support it, because who asks you, have you got enough consumers? And of course, the consumers also won't use it if they can't use it with their logistics company or their car navigation. So they go, I've tried your app. I can't use any of the products I actually use, so I'm not going to use it. How we've navigated that has just been getting better at it, getting more of each. And our pitch now is so great because you say, and it's in Mercedes's car navigation system, and you can put it in your DPD app and your DHL app and Hermes, um, and you can do all these things in different countries. But it was a real slog to get there when you're pit, you pitch and you know, people say, you know, what integrations are there? And you say, well, none. And that is hard. So, um, yeah, it took a few years to figure it out. But the team here were, were pretty, pretty talented at, at working out how we're going to do that. Okay, so... Take me through the monetization aspect. So we're talking about B2B2C. A lot of people that have just heard you talk about this, might have heard about it for the first time ever, will be understandably asking the question, how the fuck do these guys actually make money then? So the good news is that addresses is a great business that very few people know about. And just to be clear, it's important to separate address search from maps and navigation because often we're all lumped in together people's always thinking about maps and is our competitor google maps and things like this no because we don't make any maps and we don't make any navigation but every time you get into um if you, you use a ride hailing app and a car comes and you put in your destination as an address into that app somebody has to pay to turn that address into latitude and longitude where it ends up as a pin on the map Every time you are putting your address into an e-commerce website to get something delivered, somebody is paying to turn that address into latitude and longitude, which ends up as a pin on a driver's device. So the good news for us is that we actually didn't have to, even though it's a totally new kind of concept, we didn't have to invent a business model. All we're trying to do is say, instead of using that address, which in the case of where I live in my village in Hertfordshire, points nowhere near our house, Um, and someone's paying for that, we're saying, actually, if someone gives you a three-word address, you can have that to three meters of accuracy. It will cost you exactly the same. So it's in all of our interests for consumers to use a three-word address, but it won't cost you any more. And that is the proposition to businesses. So this might be a really stupid question or a really brilliant question. There's probably not much in between. Are potential really great use cases of your service the army, the navy, recovery services, etc. Or are they not because they already have longitude and latitude anyway? So it basically depends in every case. So ride hailing is a really good way of explaining this. In that, if you're standing on the side of the street in London and you know you want to go somewhere, the pickup you can drop a pin, which is where you are, 
and the blue dots there, and that's great. And it will send the latitude and longitude electronically. And so using a what-through-words address is not going to really make any difference. But where your destination is, is when you always put in an address. And that is where we're providing the value. Same for e-commerce. Um, it's about what is the destination of this package. And you're then putting an address. That's our habit that we do on every e-commerce site we, we find. So I think, yes, there are plenty of examples where people say, look, I'm dropping a pin on a platform for where I am right now and sending it to somebody else. That's cool. And what three words doesn't help in that situation if a lat long is going electronically. The one thing I've learned, though, about the world is that as much as the theory of that is very good, so much of the time we resort to using an address and or directions and or something else because either people are on different platforms which don't talk to each other um, and all of this kind of thing. So, yeah, I think latitude and longitude is brilliant. It's what every three-word address translates into, but it's only useful if it's machine to machine. But for human to machine or vice versa, that's where a three-word address gives value. Okay, talk to me a little bit about challenges growing this business then, because I know how positive you are. I know how excited and enthusiastic you are for solving this problem. But assuming that it hasn't always been up and to the right, what are some of the more challenging moments that you reflect on in your journey? So I definitely would say those first few years while we figured out the proposition and how we would sell it. Um, another thing we have to contend with here is what country and in what order. Again, depending on who you talk to, people will go, this is amazing for autonomous cars. And somebody else will say, this is amazing for the countries in the world which don't have fully developed address systems, some of the emerging economies. And they're both very good points. Um, we've had to decide and spend time and resources in many different countries. I can say for any startup that's so bandwidth and resource intensive, you've got to do flights and flights also to many different parts of the world. Uh, which mean your team get tired, uh, you've got to do so much localization and translation. And this is before or whilst you're trying to work out your, if you like, product market fit. So A is kind of, do I do consumer or business? And B is which country? And that was something that, that really took us a while to figure out. And in fact, funnily enough, the UK, which is now our biggest market, was never one of our focus countries. When we did do sort of pockets, pockets of different ones, we, we were spending a lot of time in other countries. The UK somehow sort of just crept up and had this sort of linear growth to a point where we looked at it and then went, actually, we think the UK is our biggest market. But I think just that, that whole journey of which country do you go to in what order is very tricky. I think with something like, I don't know, if you're growing Uber or one of these businesses, it felt, I think, quite logical. They were able to start in San Francisco. They were able to go to a similar profiled city and, and grow like this. With what three words, it's always been more complicated than that. And I guess the added dimension to our network effect being that you've got to have consumer A giving the three-word address to consumer B and then the business to support it is complicated. And then what happens is you go, great, well, we'd like to be in, I don't know, let's say a specific car company in the UK. Okay, well, that car company's headquartered in Japan. So you fly to Japan and you say to them, look, we're really well known in the UK. Do you want to put us in your car navigation systems? And they go, well, it would be nice if you were a bit more famous in Japan, really, because we haven't heard of this. And so then you sort of go, well, actually, maybe we need to think about Japan and so on and so on. And then the company that you know supplies to Japan is based in Germany. Or, and somewhere on the wall here is a, is a very kind of elaborate diagram showing how these countries all interplay with each other. And there is a country strategy that we have. But figuring that out when you're a few people with a brand new product for the world is really tough and took us quite a long time. 
And I, I would go as far as to say, if we had this perfectly figured out and then COVID hit in, what was it, March 2020, so much of what we do is international. And so we kind of had, the difficulty was not being able to fly around the world and see all of these clients that we just about got all of our kind of network effects in play for. But what what went in our favor then was the pivot that so much of the world did to to online delivery for everything. And people were then getting incredibly obsessed about accurate locations, all sorts of businesses that had never done delivery were doing delivery and, and worrying about locations a lot. So for the COVID years, if we can call that sort of two-year period, that we spent a lot more time in the world of delivery, very happily able to announce at the end of that these deals with Hermes, now called Every, uh, DPD, DHL, um, which are obviously big, big household names. And we're now finally able to travel again and a lot more of our car navigation deals um, are now back on track. And we've now closed, I think, 17 car navigation deals in total. But these are all from around the world. So the big difficulty has been, yeah, if you're trying to do a global business where you can't just go city by city, country by country, and you've got to try and take on, I don't know, five, six countries in parallel, I would just advise everyone like take a good deep breath if that's the kind of product you're going to make, because it is um, that is a real mission for you and your team to uh, take on. What is your current plan? Obviously, understanding that plans can change, but what is your current pitch to your plan? Like, where does what three words go from here? So at the moment, we're so well known in the UK now, I would say sort of household name status, basically, in that people have heard of the brand, they will have probably found their three word address at some point. And they are ideally using one every so often. And of course, there'll be a range around that. Some people still haven't heard of it and so, so on. But we're at a really good place here, here in, the, in the UK. I think our main focus now is to deliver that in several other markets other than our home market. I think it's always easier doing in your home market. What we're now doing is we're taking on a few countries in parallel. So Germany, India, USA, Japan, Korea, uh, the main ones. And to be able to get to that same level of household name status. Because what that means is you've got a lot of consumers who use it in everyday life. You've got a lot of businesses that the consumers can then use it in, whether that's delivery, car navigation, or so so forth. And I think at that point where we've proven that we know how to do this and it turns into a playbook country by country, that's when we exit. And it's very exciting doing that bit because, again, for the whole team, you, they, we can see what we've done in the UK and it feels amazing that everyone's heard of us but i think that's really the focus for this year and it's so great that we can now travel again is can we just get that same status in a few other countries so um, what markets are you specifically targeting do you think you'll need more capital to do it from where you are today or is a plan to hopefully sort of sell through and, and see where you get to so the markets we're now focused on are usa germany india uh, Japan, Korea. The good thing is that the product development is is all done for those markets. In India, we've developed 12 languages, which is great. So it's a country who speaks many languages. And so for us being a word-based product, that's something we have to do to go into a new new country. But that's all in place. And we have a good amount of capital in that marketing is is happening at good scale that we should be able to access most of the population. So I think we will do a bit of further capital raising because I think as we do those countries and all is going well, we will be then thinking about the next few because a bit like the UK where we've now slightly taken down our marketing exposure here in favour of doing that in new markets, we'll probably want to do the same thing and then the playbook goes. So yes, there may well be um, another round of funding before an exit and we'll sort of consider that over the next while. Got it, okay. Coming towards the end, sadly, of our, our fairy tale together, 
Um, although I hope yours obviously continues after this interview. That's not the point of the interview to be the death knell of your business, hopefully. Talk to me about um, the journey as an entrepreneur. Have you found like, have you found your mental health? Been lonely, supportive, difficult at times? Yeah, I mean, I think I think all of the above is definitely true. And it is harder when you're having to do something in a world of no competitors. Some people I think would think it'd be amazing to have no competitors, but um, something that competitors gives you is like a benchmark as well. How am I doing? Honestly, I completely, for what it's worth, I completely relate. I think that'd be exceptionally hard. Yeah. And so it is, it is bizarre for me personally and our team, I think, to have that, that lack of benchmark or say the, the competitors we have are, are some of the codes that haven't really sort of got going to the extent that it's not a useful um, benchmark for us. So I guess when when you do have a hard day, what it means is you kind of go home and you're like, are we doing amazingly or terribly? You just sort of don't know the answer to that. And I sometimes I find that tricky. And the same is true for, let's say, when we've taken on new countries and I fly out there and I kind of do these trips and you, you, you do several weeks of meetings and, and this kind of thing. And I think it's just sometimes you might just have that wobble of, have we chosen the right thing here? And you're trying to run a team of 100 plus people back in London whilst you're in some remote spot in the world convincing or let's say doing that bit of evangelizing in a new country, which I often end up doing myself. And and I do like it for many reasons, but it's just that feeling of, yes, benchmarking is nice and having having some sort of recognition or or knowing how you're getting on. And I think probably for my most difficult moments, it has just been that kind of have I made the right decisions here? And whilst you know, plenty of people will sort of give you their opinion, I'm often fairly lost as to what has been the right and wrong things. And it, even when people look back and go, what were the right and wrong decisions? Really hard to know in our case, because so many times things which have seemed like bad or wrong decisions end up being the thing, the one thing that somebody saw which got an amazing deal the other side of the planet to work. And then you kind of go, uh-huh, well, maybe I know nothing at all. So it's been largely good. The team here is massively supportive and, and our, our management team have been fairly solid over the last few years in that we've had relatively little changeover. And one of the things I think has helped me through it is having a lot of other people here at What Three Words who've been at the company five years plus. And that shared experience is a great way that I think we pick each other up through it. But early on in this, the grass is always greener. Sometimes I just wish I was running a B2B SaaS analytics business. A B2B to C SaaS analytics business, my friend. I, well, I, I mean B2B, just something where it's just kind of very straightforward. I've got a sort of one of my investors who, who runs one and, and you know, his, his valuation metrics are all very kind of set by the industry and they know exactly how they're getting on and they celebrate when this thing goes a little bit better than the competitors and, and vice versa when it's not. And sometimes it, there is very much that kind of longingness for that kind of knowing your place, if you like, in your market. But I think one, when I've sort of in the cold light of day, I think I, as a personality, am well suited to this kind of totally going into the unknown, doing something brand new for the world. And I love it. It just doesn't mean it's not without its kind of dark days of confusion and solitude. Love it. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Being awesome having you on the show. Total pleasure. Loved it. Thanks so much, Dan. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. 
there will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.